Nation Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour, episode number eight, your weekly podcast covering retro gaming and technology news. I'm Dan Wood. I'm Ravi Abbott. And I'm Joe Fox. Joe joins us again. Yeah, no, thanks for having me once again. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, Joe was on about, about a month ago now, was it? Yeah, about a month ago, episode three. Yeah, we couldn't, couldn't keep him away. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. <laughs> I had to, uh, you know, had to get on the show again, dying for more. <laughs> now, well, well, not only have we got Joe as a guest this week, who else is coming up in about half an hour from now then, Ravi? We've got Anthony and Nicola Caulfield from Bedrooms to Billions. Now, if you didn't see this documentary, it came out probably about what, two years ago now, is it? 2014? Yeah, it's available on Netflix. It's a really, really well-made documentary, you know, really high standard. It's quite in-depth as well. It's about two hours long. It's mainly about the, what's a British game? Yeah, the kind of, uh, you know, the bedrooms, basically bedrooms, coders going to the billions Mm -hmm. and becoming international successes. And right now they're actually working on the, well, they're making a movie that's a spin-off of that All About the Amiga, like another two-hour film. Yeah, and this this one's going to be absolutely massive. This is probably going to drive the Amiga community because it's telling the full story that everyone's missed out on. Well, I remember these guys were even on like BBC TV Breakfast and stuff, like the last documentary. Oh, yeah, no, they're very, very good at promotion Mm -hmm. and it's very high quality. So this is going to be, you know, all over the news. People will be going, what is this Amiga computer? (laughs) (laughs) We got the scoop. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So they're running about 40 minutes from now. Now, while we're talking about the Amiga, obviously we had some very sad news over the weekend at the time of recording this. Yeah, um, Dave Needle has passed away. And he was the kind of hardware man. Well, Dave was one of the original guys with like RJ Michael and Carl Sassenrath, who uh, right at the beginning of the Amiga, before Commodore even bought it, and then after that, he went on to work on the Atari Lynx and the 3DO. And you're a Lynx fan, aren't you, Joe? Yeah, no, I was only on my Lynx the other day. I was getting all my stuff out of the attic and uh, found the old Lynx. I was mm-hmm. on, uh, what was it, Kung Food? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, classic there. <laughs> <laughs> but even like, you know, the Amiga obviously is a legendary machine. The 3DO as well, which a lot of people think was a bit of a a full start, probably just the wrong place, wrong, wrong time, but it is It was still hard. very cutting-edge machines, mm. all of those were. And uh, if you watch the videos of the history of Amiga, mm-hmm. he's got such a personality. He's really, really a nice guy. Now, we attended a few of the Amiga 30 shows last year. Unfortunately, we didn't go to any that Dave was at. He was only at the one in uh, America, I think, wasn't he? Yeah, California? yeah. Um, and quite guttingly, he, was, he agreed to come on our show, didn't he, in yeah. the next couple of months, so... Unfortunately, that's never going to happen, sadly. That's a shame, yeah. Um, But we've got this little video here. Now, this is from our friend uh, Remotely Interested. It is a podcast, very good podcast. And uh, this is a little message that he recorded, that Dave recorded last year uh, for the Amigas 30. So this gives you a little bit of an insight into his kind of personality and his charm, I think, this video. Yeah, and it's it's kind of nice that, you know, he can celebrate it 30 years on. Let's have a listen. This is Amiga. This was 30 years ago. This was astonishing in its day, and it is still spectacular today. 7 megahertz clock, great sound, preemptive multitasking, incredible video, ease of programming, ease of use. I love it. I just love it. And this is serial number one. It's 30 years old. It still works just fine. Uh, so sincere you can really tell how how passionate he was about his creation and 
how much he loved it. Just from listening to that short mm. clip there, it really show, shined through that he was quite down to earth and really proud of what he'd made as well. Everyone says that about him, you know, everyone who's met him and they, they all say he's so humble about his achievements. When you think a guy like that that's not just worked on one big project, but he's gone on to he's, do... Yeah, yeah. Looks, and having a look here, like just looking at his Wikipedia page mm-hmm. and there's quite a lot on there. He's worked on quite a few notable systems. Well, his spirit lives on every time you play your Amiga, your 3D or your Lynx. Yep. <laughs> Rest <laughs> in so. peace, Dave. Rest in peace. Right, next one. Who are we? We've kind of realised that we've done a podcast and very arrogantly assumed that you'd know who we are. (laughs) And uh, we've been getting questions and uh, stuff like, oh, Dan has a really nice radio voice. So do you want to explain, Dan? Well, um, well, yeah, we we did get a little shout last week, as we mentioned on the um, Retro Asylum podcast, and we've had a few new listeners since then who might not be familiar. Now, I've done a YouTube channel for, God, what, about eight years? I think I've done my channel for now. Got about maybe 12,000 subscribers on there now. Done a lot of kind of, you know, not just Amiga stuff, but there is a lot of Amiga stuff on there. Kind of covering, you know, retro gaming and technology, really. Pretty much like this podcast. Uh, Also worked in professional broadcasting for about... 15 years maybe now yeah um, not that you'd know it but yeah <laughs> uh, you, you were a DJ as well <laughs> yeah you? club yeah. DJ websites got all sorts yeah so but yeah I think you know there are a lot of people I, I did see a comment at one of our videos the other day going um, oh I didn't realise you are the guy from the YouTube channel I've said some for years so yeah like you said arrogantly assumed the kind yeah. of you know it was just our audience but that's, that's how kind of me and Dan met because I was making videos of uh, Amiga shows since kind of you know 2000 or 99 and then i saw this guy on youtube and i was like what there's another person making amiga <laughs> so and it turned out we live around the corner from each other yeah yeah, so, yeah right. not stalkerish at all <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah we actually moved to this yeah, yeah. right around the corner he moved to where we live <laughs> and uh i actually used to dj as well so we have a shared uh kind of passion of well, that joe is in a band so oh yeah in a band. i was gonna say i've never never been a dj but i've uh, been in several bands over the years nothing successful so i won't plug anything <laughs> <laughs> what kind of music was it it was quite uh it was uh it was heavier stuff yeah, you know yeah. your rocky your metal your bit of death metal yeah uh, but i was in a couple of bands in my youth but uh yeah no i'm just uh friends of ravi and uh dan and uh, kick Dan's ass quite a lot at games, but gaming fanatics. <laughs> this is true, so this is true. they asked me to come along, and here I am. So I don't have it as an interesting job as these two. But <laughs> I'm a nerdy sound engineer, by the way. So yeah, yeah. I, I mix metal bands. For <laughs> <laughs> a match made in heaven. Yeah. So there you go. That's who we are for uh, the uninitiated. <laughs> right, should we crack on with this week's news stories? Yeah. Now, um, this is quite an interesting one. We're going to do Brick the iPhone Unix story first today, I think, because this is something you challenged me to try, and there's no chance I'm going to do it. <laughs> That's it. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this, Joe. What's but, um, so... You've got an iPhone, haven't you, Joe? I've got an iPhone. I've got an iPhone. <laughs> right. Of course I have. <laughs> Everybody's got an this. iPhone. Yeah, of so course I have. the date that Unix, the operating system that uh, iOS is based on, yeah. came out was in 1970. Get out. And this is the 1st of January... 1970 if you set your iphone to that yeah it's pre-unix yeah so it doesn't get it and it just bricks the whole phone oh, i didn't know that <laughs> so yeah essentially i think the way unix time works is it, it it counts time from a fixed point so to figure out what the current date is it counts like the minutes and the seconds from the first of january 1970 yeah so if you set your phone to that yeah the iphone it completely bricks it you can't do a firmware restore oh, really? anything yeah but kids have been going into apple stores all over the world and, and doing this doing <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? ipads it affects as well That's any brilliant. ios device it's so. amazing how something that you don't think of at all like unix the underlying mm-hmm. system or you know y2k bug or whatever yeah it kind of 
something set in something yeah. you know it's, it's it's that's quite funny now i didn't know that at all and i have before you know just being bored going through my phone so you know it goes back to 1970 <laughs> <laughs> january 2nd yeah, it's just, yeah just going back on the calendar just like how far will this go just scrolling through it but no it's a good job i didn't set it <laughs> but it's like uh there is also you know you mentioned the y2k thing there unix does have its own y2k but it's in 2038 Okay, it's I, gonna I, hit. there's an Amiga one, isn't there? I yeah. think that's I think that's later. It's like 2077, I think. <laughs> if oh, there'll yeah. there be any running by <laughs> yeah, then. Yeah, I mean. So, uh, yeah, you've got a few years till uh, I'm sure they'll figure out a way around it. But in the meantime, do not set your iPhone date to uh, the 1st of January 1970. <laughs> this is an official warning. <laughs> an, an official warning. Now, speaking of that, actually, this is quite a little uh, interesting point you put on here, Ravi. What was your first Apple experience? Yeah, this is due to us not mentioning Apple at all in the podcast so far, I, I think. I, I really want to say, like, something really cool and retro, like, oh, yeah, I played one of the Apple, you know, computers or something. But I really didn't. It was iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Later on. Yeah, so. I think my first experience was just seeing the uh, the colourful, you know, the old colourful computers on TV. Those IMAX that were all like yeah. Bondi Blue and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the they one were... on Zoolander when they're trying <laughs> to get in it. This is all um, due to me watching Steve Jobs, actually. Oh, Danny the... Boyle's new I still one. I haven't yeah. watched that yet. Is that any good? Really good. Oh, yeah, it? yeah. Recommend it out of there all of go. the it's official Steve again. Jobs films. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was the one last year with Ashton Kutcher, which... Oh, God. <laughs> you know, you know, I thought it was a joke. I didn't think that was real. I knew about the Michael Fesbender one coming out. Yeah. yeah. And then I kept on seeing all these pictures of Ashton Kutcher and I was like, is this some sort of like, what is this? Like, like a skit or something. Is this some sort of skit? Like, <laughs> and then I just heard terrible, like, you know, I don't want to badmouth it, but I just didn't hear. Oh, it was crap. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> well, we this go. has up to the kind of imac period yeah. as well. So it's it's focused on all the launches. Yeah. So it'll have, you know, Macintosh launch, NextCube mm-hmm. launch. But yeah. even, even yeah. in the Ashton Kutcher one last year, I remember, you know, Steve Wozniak, who co-founded Apple with Steve Jobs. In the, you know, in real life, Woz yeah. was the proper hardcore computer nerd. Yeah. Jobs was a businessman. Yeah. But in this film, the, the, the Ashton Kutcher one, it's Jobs who's trying to convince Woz that computers are worthwhile. And stuff. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's like... <laughs> Made him out to be some proper, like, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm like a computer nerd. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. It's like, which he wasn't at all. And it's like... But apparently this one's a bit more factual... You know, factual than the last film. So, so what was your first Mac experience, Dan? My fir- first time I ever saw Mac was in the school summer holidays. I was probably only about eight years old, maybe. I went to stay with my auntie for a couple of weeks, and she ran a print shop. Yeah. If you had a pronto print, I don't know if they're still around. They're like, no. Yeah, I think of. Yeah, yeah, I think they're just like a franchise. She ran one of these in like late 80s, early 90s. Um, but at the time, I had like a Commodore, you know, plus four at home that was just typing basic and stuff. And I went there, and she had like, um, she had like three of them in a print shop. And I'd never used a computer mouse before. And I was like, what's this thing here? And I was like, she had the paint program up. And it, it was, oh, yeah. I think it was one of the old black and white Macs, you know, the all-in-ones. Desktop publishing. Yeah, it was DTP, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'd, I'd never even used a mouse before, let alone, you know, I, she let me paint pictures on the screen because it was a print shop. They had a high-quality, like, laser printer. So I was making, like, you know, Christmas cards and birthday cards <laughs> for my wow. friends. And, Blowing uh, your mind. <laughs> yeah, That's I was great. like... But I always remember that. I mean, you know, I wasn't really... An, I didn't get my first... Um, I've also had Apple laptops, but I've probably got my first one in about 2003, probably. It was an iBook G3. And I've also had Apple laptops since, and I've got a few desktops now as well. But, um, yeah, it was probably a good, like, you know, 10 years between my first Mac experience. And then again, we used to at college. We had, um, I don't know if I told this story on the show last week. I've spoke to a few podcasts recently. Not that I'm cheating on you. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, well, we had, um, when, when I was at college, you remember when, like, Napster and all that came yeah. out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We had... 
<laughs> we had this room that was like for the design students to use. But I go in there on a Saturday to use the internet and stuff. And then I figured out that I could download Napster onto all these Macs. <laughs> so I basically had my own little botnet. Brilliant. <laughs> nice. 15 nice. Macs. And they're on like a T1 connection, just downloading MP3s and burning them onto CDs Beautiful. after. So uh, they figured me out after about six months, but I got an entire music collection. I think um, I sealed his DJ career. <laughs> <laughs> I think I saw an old Mac, uh, you know, Macintosh 2 oh, right, yeah, back yeah. in the day and then went into a studio later on in the late kind of 90s, early 2000s. And they had one of these beautiful digital audio Macs, oh, right, uh, yeah. which was running Logic on. So like a G4 or something? Yeah, and it was Soundforge as well. Mm. And it was like a really beautiful machine. When I went to college, and I think it was, I mean, it wasn't too long. It was like 2008, 2009, and it was all Mac. And I had been using Reason and stuff like to produce music terribly on my PC. And yeah. we went in and we had Logic and everything. Yeah. And... It was quite funny because that was this is one of my probably my first main experiences with an iPhone, and they just assumed we'd all know how to use a Mac, and I barely knew what one was. Yeah, you're like, there's one button. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, that blew my mind. I was like, how do I open another tab? Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is though, about Apple, even now, I got like a new um, a Mac Mini i5 for my living room the other day, like about yeah. two weeks ago. But then they still set the mouse up to be one button, and you've got to go into the settings and change it. It's like, it can support two. Why not just have it on by default? It's how, like, how are you finding the iWatch? Yeah, I've got an Apple Watch as well. Um, to be <laughs> fair, I, I got this about a year ago. When did it come out? About a year ago, probably? Yeah, yeah. about a year ago. Um, yeah, and it's more just like, you know, text on your wrist, really. It's, uh, the novelty's kind of wore off a bit, but okay. I don't really miss it if I haven't got I've it. Got, I don't I've got one more thing as well, though. What does the, I read an article earlier this week. What does the I stand for is it internet or interactive it's a bit of both it was mm. several it was internet interactive inspire i think oh, okay there's a couple of things i can't remember information it now, oh. i think it was information but it was everybody always assumes it's internet but it actually stands for about six things yeah which i thought oh, okay. was pretty cool yeah so. just sounds cool doesn't it <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, inspire remember, information because that's what they said about the imac in the film this is an internet machine you know yeah. it's just for the internet well did so you did it. you guys get ipods back back in the day yeah, I had one, yeah. Do you remember your first iPod? Yeah, it was an iPod Mini, so yeah, yeah. it wasn't that 2005, ago. was it? Or probably uh, 10 years ago, though, were it? Probably about yeah. 2006. Yeah. Yeah. I had a fat creative media player. You know, Yours those... had to be alternative, <laughs> really. Yeah, these were pre-iPod. They were just literally a hard drive. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, a like, ghetto blaster on your shoulder. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. Groove Shark, I think <laughs> there was a thing called Groove yeah, Shark. Yeah, well, I had, I had a mini disc for a couple of years, and like... The iPod, I think, it was probably out around the same time, but it was like four, five hundred quid at first when it came yeah. out. And then I got one probably about 2002, maybe my first one. Ooh. It was the first iPod. Yeah, yeah, and I've seen your yeah. review on it. <laughs> still got it, it still works. Yeah, I've changed yeah. your battery in it since, but it was just because um, in mini discs, I don't know if you've had mini discs, but you'd have to sit yeah. there and record them in real time. Yeah, no, I, at college we had to use yeah, mini yeah. discs a lot for college radio and yeah. stuff, so. Now I'm going to get nerdy. Do you remember data discs? No. Were they mini discs that you put data on? I never High used capacity them. mini yeah. discs that you could do multi track mixing. Oh, it's very nerdy. Smile on his face. Was, was, yeah. Oh, they were so good. <laughs> Wasn't USB out by then, though? No one give a shit. Uh, I think they did an MP3 compression thing, Sony Net MD. Oh, uh, yeah. To, to, to ram as many tunes on a mini disc. I think they were A track format, though, weren't they? Yeah. It was A track. Yeah. You had to convert MP3 to what my mate had one, yeah. But. Um, <laughs> Yeah, rest in peace, mini disc. Yeah. I didn't like it. So there you go. We're a bit of Apple on the show. Then. Well, well, talking about that, we can actually skip to one story now. Okay, yeah, which yeah. is that cassettes are back. Oh, so mini disc yeah. isn't, but cassettes are. You know, this is actually quite weird because I've been listening to cassettes quite a lot in the last couple of weeks. Um, over Christmas, I went to get my. I was back at my mum's and I got my cassette 
yeah. collection down. So, yeah. and they've been up there for about fifteen years, probably. So, I found all these old tapes again, and like the place I work, they were throwing out a proper studio Yamaha cassette recorder. Like just before Christmas, I was like, "Well, I'll finally back up all those old tapes." So well, I've, dude, I've been one of these. You're hipsters. riding the wave. Yeah, I know, mate, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, you know, you know what? Like, it's like all these other things. You know, these you know vinyl making a comeback in the last couple of years and everything. But I've been expecting. I have been expecting uh, tapes to make a comeback because, you know, mm. I think it was two years ago, you know, when Guardians of the Galaxy came out mm-hmm. yeah. and it was like the kick-ass, kick-ass mix or whatever it was called, the awesome mix. And all of a sudden, everybody was using cassette tapes again. And I noticed this a lot at work and a lot of friends and stuff were walking around with cassette tapes. And I was just like, oh, that's quite a novelty. And then all of a sudden, it's, you know, in the paper. I, <laughs> walk, I walked around Forest Fields the other day and I saw uh, this area in Nottingham and I saw a tape wound around a lamppost. <laughs> yeah, you know, the kind unraveled. of... Yeah, unraveled and it really... T- took me back. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. You should see that everywhere, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. I forgot about if, that. Yeah. If it wasn't that, it was uh, the shoes tied up around, you know, over the, yeah, <laughs> over the, the over did, yeah. power lines. <laughs> well, that's yeah, where I, we're from. I, th- yeah. I think with cassette, it was like when you walk and tune it up, you took it out in frustration. We're like, oh, it's gross, <laughs> yeah. didn't you? And it would just like the wind would take it onto a lamppost or a fence, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> now, I must admit, with my old tapes, though, I have been sampling them onto MP3 and throwing them in the bin. So oh, I haven't no, actually mate, got them anymore. Pull them out the bin. Yeah, I've threw about 200 of them out. So if any cassette hipsters are listening, then, yeah, uh, hipsters yeah. will be going for you, trash. Yeah, <laughs> Catching for the bin man comes on Monday, but it's like I think cassettes did die for a reason. Yeah, they yeah. Were awful. it's just it's the it's the digital world now. Like analogs just. But actually, I do remember in around two thousand and one when we're into the urban dance music scene, people couldn't afford to do mass CD production. So there was there's still tape packs coming out. Well, I, fa- I found tape packs of like because uh, I used to be into like UK Garage and like um, Ramsey and Fenn and the Dream Team. But you get you go into like record shops and you get these big like plastic boxes with like six <laughs> yeah. tapes from a Raven. They, you know, I've got a few of that. My mum still worst quality. Oh yeah, but it's like even then, yeah, they've been duplicated about forty times. So, <laughs> and with analog, the more you duplicate it, the worse quality it gets every time. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I think you know I can see maybe a bit of nostalgia for old games and all that, but really. VHS tapes and cassette tapes, I think. No, I got rid of them for a reason. I got all my uh, talking VHS VHS tapes. I got all my old gaming collection, a lot of nostalgic stuff out of my attic the other day, and uh, I found uh, the Street Fighter series, the cartoon, on VHS. And I was like, oh my god, I can't play it on anything. But I took one of them out, and it was just the tape, (laughs) (laughs) just coming out. Keeping on the uh, music vibe, we can just look at this IAM8bit.com, which is vinyl releases of game soundtracks. So, see, vinyl is a different subject. You know, I quite like vinyl as well, but there is something... You know, vinyl's always been good quality. It's not like hissy, like... um, No, I can see that, yeah. But um, But this is like, you know, they've got the Battletoad soundtrack coming out, mm. Banjo-Kazooie... Uh, faster than light, XCOM, you know. Yeah, perfect dark here as well. They're all pretty reasonably priced as well. Like you can pay that much, you know. This is something quite unique. Mm. Whereas mm-hmm. you can go into a shop like HMV or something and spend more than what I can see here on the website on just you know kind of the new album or whatever what's just come out kind of thing. Yeah, they're always more than CDs, aren't they? Yeah. So looking back here, this is really looking at this website here. It's really unique. And uh, you know they've got some really good stuff like Hotline Miami, which is a Oh, yeah. Absolute wicked yeah, soundtrack. Wicked, yeah. wicked game, wicked Nathan soundtrack. Drake collection, I see here as well. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's like, th- these are, you know, for, for the hardcore collectors, really, aren't they? I oh, imagine yeah. a lot of guys are going to frame these or whatever. You probably will never play them. But. Yeah, you wouldn't get a DJ. You're not going to sit back and really appreciate You're not going to sit back and go, yeah, I'm going to listen to that 20 times. You'll listen to it once and then, like Dan says, put it, put it on the shelf or put it in the frame. <laughs> yeah, that's it. 
Now, um, I thought this was quite interesting. Speaking of, like, you know, games being kind of art, as it were. Yeah. Uh, the story of the Amstrad CPC and Pixels. Okay. Now, have you seen these? They've done these, like, pixel books where there's pictures of games and stuff. They did one about the Commodore 64. Oh, and it's, like, really Amiga. zoomed in. And, yeah, they yeah. look pretty cool. So there's one about Ocean Software, the ZX Spectrum story. There's one about US Gold they've done as well. So now... It hasn't been confirmed yet, but basically the guy that's behind this series is released a little teaser um, of a couple of pages of what looks like an Amstrad CPC collection. So, Oh, yeah. wow, that looks really nice. Yeah. So the, I think the rest have been done on Kickstarter. Ah, mm, I can okay. see it, yeah. But these are um, they're just nice if, if you're a fan of like any system having proper books with all the, the amazing game artwork and preserved and you know, kind of presented in quite an artistic way. They're quite nice little coffee table books in that, I think. It reminds me of... Uh... Retro Gamer, actually. Their mm. kind of presentation on there. Yeah, the way they zoom them all in. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Look, it's a really nice way of doing it, actually. I'm surprised they didn't do it in a lot of the old mags. But, uh, they were trying to keep the graphics looking really good, not pixely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the opposite now, isn't it? Yeah. yeah I was going to say, these days, we, appre- we, like, we look at it and go, wow, look at the pixels on that. <laughs> yeah. Now, should we talk about the, uh, the Coleco? Oh yes, let's let's go for now, it. We'll just say off the uh, straight away before we start on this, we got um, someone telling us off last week for calling it the Coco Chameleon. We <laughs> don't know why we said that. We know it's Coleco. I and, uh, this is the unfolding saga of the Coleco. Do you want to? Have you heard about this? More? Have you heard about this, Joe? Yeah, the Kamika is that the one the um, the one which is uh, using all the Atari Jaguar consoles. Now, Shells. Yeah, we spoke about. It. I mean, there is actually the a toilets. video on on Vimeo of uh, the guy who's behind this, he goes to visit the, the company that bought the, the moulds off Atari. Mm. And I don't think it's on YouTube, but we'll put a link to the, the Vimeo. It's quite interesting. You see him driving out there. And he gets a tour of like, because it was you know, a dental camera company yeah, yeah. who bought the moulds for the Atari Jaguar. Yeah. So you actually see this guy is the guy behind the dental stuff back in like oh, the right. late 90s. So yeah. he's got the original moulds and he shows them all off. And the guy behind this um, Coleco project, he looks really excited about it. But this story's... It's kind of got a lot of twists and turns. Um, Definitely, because I'd come to present a story to you today about how they've got an Atari archive collection that they're going to be releasing on that. But then you told me something that's totally... (laughs) uh, just blows that out of the uh, water. there's been a big thread on the Atari Age forum that's into like hundreds of pages now. And also there's been a few... um, There's a couple of videos on YouTube that's calling the whole project a scam. Right. Well, they were going to do it on Kickstarter, but they couldn't because... They didn't have a prototype. And to do a Kickstarter, a hardware Kickstarter, you need a prototype. Right. So they made it an Indiegogo, and that failed, didn't it? It didn't yeah. reach yeah. its amount. So they went to Coleco, or the company that owned the Coleco trademark mm. now. Um, they were obviously like an early 80s console. Yeah, Coleco um, Vision. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's just, you know, someone owns a trademark now. It's not the original company. Um, but now they want to put it on Kickstarter again. However, to do that, they need, obviously, working uh, prototype hardware. So last week... They're at a uh, gaming show, I think it was a toy show actually in America, with what they said was a uh, prototype of this new console. Yeah. However, it was only playing Super Nintendo games, and it was in the Atari Jaguar shell, but it had two Super Nintendo controllers just coming out the back of it, and it was covered in black duct tape. <laughs> right. So you couldn't see where they were going. And the one in the control ports on the front, everyone's like, what are they, like, soldered directly onto the motherboard or something? Yeah. And then it turns out a few people at the show actually took a few pictures of it. And now, you know, I'll post a link to the forum if you want to see it in a bit I more detail. I know where this is going. <laughs> so, you look on the back and the AV connector is a Super Nintendo AV connector. You know yeah. that proprietary Nintendo one? Yeah. That the GameCube uses as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, the power supply is one of those, it's like an all-in-one that does 
Genesis and SNES. Right. And the, one of the Genesis sides hanging off, so it's using the Super Nintendo power supply. The port layout's exactly the same. Hmm. And then the top <laughs> of it, where the cart goes in, there is half of an Atari Jaguar cart. Around the back of it is a Super Nintendo EverDrive. <laughs> <laughs> so they just disguised it shoddedly, like not even that well by the sounds of things, just to fool and trick people that they've got a working prototype when they obviously don't. That's what everyone's saying, yeah. I mean, by the looks of it, it's very suspicious, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, that's more than suspicious. That, that sounds like cold, hard evidence to me. <laughs> and the thing is, they seem to be uh, absolutely spamming the news with news oh, stuff recently. Yeah, all the mainstream it's, sites are loving them. Yeah. I've not been able to find news because there's been so much this talk about Coleco and then... Yeah. Yeah. We had Gizmodo, an article from them last week, loving it, Engadget are all over it at the moment, but it's really YouTube and kind of the, mm. the retro gaming forums yeah. where people are like, actually, no, this is... And that's bullshit. the uh, CU podcast that did that little... Yeah, uh, well, with... there's there's a half an hour video, Pat the NES Punk, um, and Dave, I can't remember his name. Yeah. Yeah, they did the, the yeah. CU podcast. And there's a half an hour video that they've done on YouTube. Yeah, Punk Effect, uh, guys, punkeffect.com. Yeah, so I'll pop a link in our show notes if you're interested, but it, it's quite... It's an interesting story, but yeah. it sounds it does sound a bit shady, I've got to say. I was going to say, it's kind of disappointing because I'm just looking at pictures of it now and the controller looks ace. Like, looks like a, it does look like a nice console. Like, mm-hmm. It's got that retro, you know, retro feel to it, but like, aesthetically it looks really new and Xbox One-ish. And it's such a mix of completely everything. It's, it's, last week we were discussing how it hasn't yeah. got a clear path. You <laughs> we know, were saying, we were last week, you know. You've Who's going to actually buy it? Like, because <laughs> you've got cartridges, but you haven't got any DLC. So yeah, there's yeah. going to be no exclusive games for it. All you're going to get is games that are on Steam and like Android. And it's a Coleco it console in an Atari case. Yeah, with a, you know, could, play. could end up yeah. being if it is is real. Could end up just being a bit of a Frankenstein's monster of consoles, really, and hardware. Yeah, <laughs> and even like you know, we mentioned last week that if you're going to make it look like any console in history, would the Jaguar be the one that you pick? Really? Yeah, you you would have thought you know a, a Super Nintendo would be a little bit nicer. Awesome. Get rid of the Atari. Shell, just stick with the Super Nintendo. Yeah, you know, you know so. what I mean. So, uh, what was it about the Atari archive, though? What, what what have they got then? They've just got a collection of Atari games that they're going to chuck on there. So 2,600 is... games. It's like you know your Steam um, Atari Vault that we covered the other day. So just over three hundred of them. Yeah. So basically, yeah. they've just got a load of titles that they can slap on there and say, "Oh, Atari fans, yeah, welcome!" Yeah, yeah. You know, come buy it. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to be a cartridge gem, pretty much. You just, yeah. You know, I mean, the I games are only about one k or something, anyway, aren't they? Yeah. 2600 games but yeah it's a project that obviously we'll keep following but um a bit of a skeptic it about it. Yeah. <laughs> interesting story though good drama yeah well, <laughs> was a little a, bit of drama yeah a bit of popcorn <laughs> next story ravi yes we've got as we talked to john Hare, the guy from sensible soccer and he told us it was still going on it is indeed this is the world cup of sensible soccer 2016 <laughs> <laughs> in a in Germany, Almelo, yeah. Netherlands. On the 20th and 21st of August. So, yeah, they do these every year, I think, don't they? Yeah, and the f- mad thing is they get dedicated guys from all over Europe to come and actually stay over, like, compete, <laughs> you know, stay for <laughs> weeks, take it really seriously. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I say. If you're passionate about it and you enjoy it, why not? And the tournament fee is, yeah, well, it's 120 euros, it says, and that includes three nights stay with eight meals. 
So, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? That's, like, That's just like a little holiday, isn't it, really? It's cheaper than a holiday, probably. Well, yeah, exactly. But, Dan, you've not read the main thing, unlimited snacks and drinks. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should go. It's going to get oh, people wow. never even yeah. played Swars. Like, <laughs> well, the terms and conditions are if you participate in all four tournaments there, Avi. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Doesn't say for how long. No, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> but, but, you know, this still going on. It shows how much there's a demand for sociable soccer and there's also a demand for old school sensey still yeah well we did, we did mention when we had John Hare on the show the other week that he's working on a new football game at the moment sociable soccer which is kind of going to be the spiritual successor isn't it to sensey yeah. so yeah I mean there is still you know a committed fan base out there for it absolutely now there's a new Amiga game um, footage being released oh I didn't know about this uh, I'd not heard about this game before now apparently last year in December Mm. Uh, someone on one of the Amiga Facebook groups um, told us about this new Amiga game that's in development at the moment and this looks like a cross between Chaos Engine and Gods I, literally I was just looking at it and the first thing that came to mind was Chaos Engine like that's what it looked like straight away yeah to me. very which, graphically the same isn't which it? isn't a bad thing to look like well this is called uh, Scourge of the Underkind this looks so good <laughs> yeah well it's um, <laughs> he's released a video now showing the engine of it working, and uh, this runs just on a, a standard Amiga 500. And if you wow. look at it, I mean, the main character does look a bit like gods, doesn't it? You know what else it looks like? Uh, as we call it in the UK, zombies. Zombies ain't my neighbours. Yeah. It looks just really similar to that. A little bit slower, but maybe a little bit nicer as well, if you know what I mean. Yeah, like, this does look like a, a full release. It doesn't look like, you know, a crap PD game or anything. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like, no, this looks fantastic, this does. Is he going to release this then? Apparently so, yeah. This is just, I mean, I guess it's an early, um, I don't think there's any ETA for it yet, but um, he did announce it before Christmas, apparently. Now he's got this kind of, it looks, you know, it looks like a fully workable engine, doesn't it, from the YouTube video? Mm. This and Tanks Furry, I'm going to be Amiga Gaming this year. Exactly, it looks yeah. great. Yeah, exciting time. Yeah. Tell us about the Argos Arcade then, Ravi. <laughs> the Argos Arcade. <laughs> yeah, what well, is this? Argos Arcade, this is a... Well, a our, our favourite thing is covering crappy new games consoles <laughs> and oh, kind wow. of remakes <laughs> Look at it. and this is a tiny little arcade that Argos have made this looks uh, cute <laughs> for 24.99 say £5 pounds, free delivery yeah. 240 <laughs> classic games now I don't know they must be classic arcades so you probably have some Atari stuff in there you'd have you would have maybe thought, Neo Geo or they would have thought they might give you a list of the 240 games yeah this is Argos come on yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. now this thing is called the uh, the Lexi Book Cyber Arcade it turns out it's available on Amazon as well looking here 24.99 let's see if Amazon are any more uh, um, detailed with the list well one thing <laughs> one thing that I'm going to say actually is uh, now I've seen this on Argos uh, that's all the Argos stuff available we're going to low off Argos because now we've got game and the game store is Valhalla. is absolutely full of all these weird retro old school things. So uh, there's the NES Retro Entertainment System, which is what they've actually released, which is a black NES. So, so what's this? Is... So on ga- oh, wow. So game of... Look at that. Yeah. yeah and so... they're selling all these kind of consoles now. So there's, Only there's 20, also. 22 99 as well. There's also a list of the ones that they had out of stock. So I'll just recap uh, on this because we mentioned this in our first episode, I think, didn't we? That, that Game, the, the British high street game retailer, are now doing retro, retro titles again. Mm. Um, but they're actually selling consoles then, by the looks of it, aren't they? So they've yes. got the, yeah, the Sega Mega Drive Classic. Um, you know what's just caught my eye? They've got a Neo Geo. They've got a Neo Geo on here. Yeah. 134. Gold limited edition. Which is an absolute <laughs> steal 
for the U, for you for people in the UK, that is an absolute steal at 134 pounds. Did they release this over here? Um, I the, don't think they. Well, this is yeah, a Neo Geo X. Yeah, it's a remake. 20 preload classic. So these are all remakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've got cartridge slots on them. If but, you if you look at the out of stock one on the side, it says show. If you look at there, then uh, you can see that they've got a a Neo Legends 80s gaming table. They've got like you know Sega classic packs. They've got. Neo Geo arcade full-size cabs that wow. they were selling through game, you know. This is, uh, you know. this is fantastic. I mean, this is really up my street. Anybody, definitely, if you were growing up in the 80s and 90s, this is really, this is something else. I'd definitely recommend getting onto uh, the game website and looking at the retro section at the moment. Now, we were going to talk about this actually a couple of weeks ago, and I forgot completely about it, but... Um... Have any of you either you know, ever wanted to build your own, own arcade cabinet before? Yeah, no, this is something I've discussed with friends of mine before. Making my own main cabinet, that would be pretty pretty cool, but, uh, you know, something I could probably couldn't afford. Have you seen a Hyperspin? That's what I've always wanted to do. So uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a front end for art- arcade cabinets where you can have all the different systems mm-hmm. on it and, bam, you just select it, it loads up the emulator straight away. Really nice presentation. Yeah. And eight, eight terabyte archive apparently. Oh yeah. And you can <laughs> wow. you can you can every single game's on there and you can uh you know even have coin inserts on it. It'll work with jammer boards, so it'll work on yeah, the old arcade systems. Is this for um you can install it on a PC then, can you as well? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It basically runs on the PC inside, but also you can make custom menus so people have done C D thirty two ones. There's okay. every system possible there. Because before Christmas, I um, my brother wanted. Uh, he, he was talking to me about getting a Super Nintendo. He wanted. Yeah. But I I got like an old original Xbox, mm. and I think it was you know that's entertainment. The the kind of have you been to that shop before? That's entertainment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like HMV, but ten years ago, <laughs> and they got um, the original Xboxes for twenty quid. Yeah. So I bought one and I installed a thing called a Coinops Seven. Okay. All right. Which is it's a front end, and it gives you not only pretty much all the Sega, Nintendo. Amiga, Atari, with loads of like games included. Yeah. But also, it's got MAME included as well. Oh, nice. I think there's about 4,000 arcade titles on it. And that was a big download. It was, um, I think, about 60 gigabytes. But I, I put a big hard disk in it, and you have to hack it, jailbreak yeah, the, the Xbox, yeah. but that actually runs really well. But then I had a mate the week after who was talking to me, he wants to make a, an arcade cabinet, so I was saying, you know, should you use one of them? But a lot of people use Raspberry Pis as well, mm. they're apparently quite good for it. So it's something yeah. I've always fancied doing, though. I remember there was a guy, uh, I'll, I'll try and add in the show notes, but there was a guy who made an Amiga cabinet on YouTube. And it, from the start, he made it using real Amiga hardware. Yeah. And okay. hooked it up. And it's a whole series of videos. I'll try and find them and put them in the notes. But I remember there was um, there used to be a podcast probably about late, remember 2008, 2009? It was called System. It was on Revision 3. Mm-hmm. And there's like about four episodes of that where they show you building an arcade cabinet mm. from scratch, even cutting the wood out, oh, wow. and how oh, wow. to paint it. And it's on YouTube, actually. So. Yeah, and it's like a step-by-step, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, it's, wow. It's a lot cheaper to do your own than actually yeah. buy one pre-made. It's about a thousand quid, I think, if you buy them, aren't they, usually? Yeah, and uh, kind of you can do custom backlights, and yeah, you can get really nerdy, but imagine what your neighbours will think if you had an arcade <laughs> cabinet. All those noises, and yeah. yeah. I, I never leave the house. Yeah. But then it's, um, you, you wonder how many like old arcades have just got like cabinets sitting in the back that they haven't used for years. Oh, or... yeah, you could oh, probably yeah, go to an fantastic. old pub. Or... <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well, um, funny, funny you should say that. My family are actually from uh, Blackpool. So growing up, um, 
even just at my granddad's house, which was a B and B, he had an arc- he had an arcade room. Unfortunately, he sold a lot of them at our boot a couple of years <laughs> for ago. for about five or eight. Yeah, he had a sit down <laughs> classic um, Space Invaders glass table oh, wow. cabinet, and he sold it for fifty quid. And oh, I, I, I I could have broke down like on my knees crying when my mum told me that. But no, funny enough, if you lived in Blackpool, um, it probably wouldn't surprise you if you heard all these arcade sounds coming from you. Next well, time you're giving us a tour of play. Yeah, but that's a good point. I did think to myself when we're going next month, is, month after, isn't it? So. Yeah, yeah. Right, a bit of Nintendo news then before we uh, get into this week's interview. Yeah, so the NX, um, which is the new Nintendo console. I know it's not retro, but well, we'll talk it's, about it's Nintendo. It's sort of relevant, isn't it? Yeah. So. They're a classic brand. Uh, they've, they've actually started sending stuff out to third-party developers. Now, this is mad. Cause yeah. They've not had third-party developers since the GameCube. Oh, really? Well, there, there was some know, on the Wii U, but everyone just like leaves after about three months usually, don't they? Yeah. Oh, yeah, because of Nintendo's crazy demands. <laughs> so EA are already reporting that they have a, uh-huh. a development unit from Nintendo. Are they developing then? I don't know, but, you know, at well, least the I hardware's mean, real. <laughs> there's there's rumours here that it's, you know, Final Fantasy as well, you know... There's rumours of that floating around. Because that was the well. killer, wasn't it? When the PlayStation got Final Fantasy yeah. VII and they left Nintendo. That yeah. was the, the big... So, reading about that, yeah. it's a bit like, oh, you know, partnerships coming back yeah, together. It's, it's very interesting. <laughs> Rekindling old flames. Let's finish off with one more Nintendo story then. This is old school. Have you seen this video about 101 gamers playing Super Mario Kart at the same time? Yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> <laughs> it looks absolute madness. I didn't even realise. So is that actual players playing it? I just, no, no, this no. is actually an animation. It's I just, um, as much, yeah. just a mock-up. It's a guy on YouTube called Hat Loving Gamer. And he's put loads of characters from other games in as well. But you watch this video, they're like they're doing the conga, pretty much of that close yeah, to each other. They've got like there's all sorts in there. We've got Kratos from game uh, from uh, God of War. We've got Pokemon in there and everything. But Crash Bandicoot, Crash it. Bandicoot. <laughs> We've got uh, Golden Axe are in there. So Even Sonic, Sonic. I was going to say Doctor Robotnik's <laughs> nice and prominent on the uh, the video there. But yeah, no, it looks so. fantastic piece of like fantastic clip just looking at it it wouldn't be played but we, we played it we're like what four four guys didn't we on the uh, on the GameCube oh yeah, yeah 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 Eight of us, wasn't it, on Double Dash? Eight, 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 yeah, eight of us eight, on Double There was Dash. a really bad projection on the walls, so we could just see, like, bricks. <laughs> that was, uh, really I was bitterly disappointed because I never lose at Double Dash, and I did. <laughs> but but I, imagine it with 101. Not yeah. going to work, is it? Yeah, it's not going to work. <laughs> right, okay. well, thank you very much for listening to this week's show. Of course, you can get The Retro Hour every Friday from our website, theretrohour.com, on iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, all the usual places. We're everywhere. Can't get away, can't escape. <laughs> And uh, we're going to hand you over now to this week's interview now. If you watch the Bedrooms to Billions documentary, uh, the creators of that, Anthony and Nicola Caulfield, uh, also they're working on a new documentary now all about the Amiga, so we'll get the lowdown on that, and we will catch you on next week's show. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast. Yes, and we are complete Amiga nutters, so we're looking forward to your film. Let's start at the beginning, though. What, what's your background? What, um, what systems did you both grow up with? Um, for, my, for myself, it was, the, um, it was the Commodore 64. I had that for many years, collected extensively for it, and um, right the way through the 80s, bought all the magazines, and probably like many other millions of children across the UK and across Europe, in the late 80s, I got a, well, my dad got an a, a, um, Atari ST1040 um, with a black and white monochrome screen, nice. which, if, if anybody knows, you're not able to actually play many games um, with that, simply because it's the wrong hurt. So it was, uh, 
yeah, I eventually was able to get hold of a colour monitor and start start playing some games. And then after that, it was the Amiga A500 in in '92, which I absolutely adored. Yeah, I um I started with the Spectrum, and um and then from there I had a Commodore as well, and then um yeah around sixty four. Commodore 64. Yeah, my 64. Your 64, yes. Which I think that's why you married me, to get the Commodore 64 back. <laughs> nice tactic. And, uh, <laughs> and, then, um, and then from there, an Amiga as well. Although I I loved having um, my Atari when I was younger as well. Or 2600. My 2600, oh, okay. I absolutely okay. adored that. <laughs> why did the story of UK gaming need to be told? I think it originally came because we uh, we were surprised that it hadn't been told before. We'd originally been trying to pitch it as a television series. Um, we'd written the idea down in about 1999 in our notebook. We wrote a sort of several television series ideas. At that time, what happened to the British games industry? Mm-hmm. Simply because we were, um, you know, when you when you uh, are coming up with a documentary idea, normally what you do is you start it with a question. So, like, you know, it, it, there has to be some form of question in order to explore the answer through yeah. the through the documentary. And we just did a little bit of looking around. And I think in 99, actually, we, we just watched Thumb Candy, the Ian Lee. Very yeah. nice, very good um, documentary. We've met Ian a few times, actually, since then. And I think he was a little bit not that never made a series. It sort of, we, we bandled it around in the early 2000s. Um, and we then kept changing kept how tweaking we should it, do it. Change. It was a one-off yeah. and a three-parter. And we were trying to make sure it stayed. Because Thumb Candy did a good job of... You know, really doing a sort of quick sixty-minute potted history of the games industry. They did a pretty good job, actually. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, and um, we sort of wanted to expand on that a bit and stick to the, um, the the British games industry. And then we couldn't get any interest from any of the broadcasts. And we were we were beginning to find. Uh, I'm not going to get. I sort of occasionally showed a bit of a, a annoyance about this over the years. And you sort of have to accept that that when you've got. Um, commissioning editors they, they're not experts in in everything that you take it to but we were finding a real resistance about doing anything about the games industry of any kind it seemed to be a sort of a sort of slightly sneery um, attitude looking down on it as if it was a um, you know just not worth considering and we were finding at the time that there was ridiculously num- large numbers of, of music documentaries and um, and art documentaries and mu- all sorts of different types but nothing zero on the games industry and when BBC4 started up in the um, about probably get the date slightly wrong say 2006 2007 and we started to notice that there was more sort of um, Thinking man's type program, things that you might consider more niche. Mm. Um, we went to we went to BBC Four with a, with what we thought was a really good idea. You know, a three parter Ian Lee presenting it. Um, we had a, several chats with Ian about that at the time, and he was really up for it. And we had we even started sort of putting together the, the episodes, and we really convinced that it was going to get picked up. And we got a really good response from the from the commissioning editor um, at, at BBC Four. And at that time, they just commissioned. Um, the the Martin Freeman, um, uh, Clive Sinclair, oh, the Micro Men War. Yeah, they just commissioned it. It hadn't been written yet um, at that time, and they asked us, uh, would we be interested in doing the documentary so that it actually coincided with the with the screening of that so it would be what would happen is was you get micromen and then the first episode of and it wasn't called from bedrooms to billions then it was at a working title simply of british video games documentary you know very catchy and um <laughs> went several meetings up there 
and um, we literally just got an email out the blue after a couple of weeks just saying the controller of BBC4 feels that video games are too niche for BBC4 viewers, (laughs) Um, which it's quite, it's a funny, you know, it's a funny line. Nicola always, um, you know, I'd sort of be sort of like shaking my fist at the sky and um, Nicola would always be fine, you know, they're wasting their time, let's just go on. Um, the, the thing is, we're always looking for just a means of getting the idea out there. And really, it was always, film was where we always wanted to be, you know, that's where a lot of our experience is. And and so it was like going to TV was a means to try and find funding. Yeah. Um, and when that kind of didn't work out, then we started to turn towards other options to get the funding and, and go the film route. And that's when we discovered crowdfunding. Um, and the nice thing about crowdfunding is, you know, you put your idea up there, it stays as your idea, you know, and people buy into what they want you to do. Looking at some of the guests that you had on Bedrooms to Billions, obviously a lot of these guys, I mean, you know, the kind of the, the premise of the documentary is that it went from kids making games in their bedrooms to becoming like billionaires pretty much. Um, but a lot of those were very, very young at the time. Guys like Matthew Smith, for example, who was coding Spectrum games from his bedroom before he was even a teenager. When speaking to these people, did you find that any of them kind of felt like they were taken advantage of and they didn't really understand the business all that well when they were so young? That did happen. You know, it's actually in, in business, it's actually quite rare to get a creative that's, that can create their own thing and be good at selling it. It, it's, it doesn't tend to come... Usually you find you've got a team the creative up with the salesman you know you tend to find that you have to sort of that it doesn't always come that way so when when you do get a developer a self coder a bedroom coder that can actually also sell their own product and they've got the gift of the gab then that is a rare thing and you tend to find that those those guys have done very well and that doesn't mean they're better it just means they have another a quality a different talent to somebody else so it means they might have had the extra thing or so there were plenty of developers that that didn't have the, the business sense, but they were lucky to meet somebody that was, and they formed a, t- a good, solid team. It's a bit like being a pop I mean, star when you're a kid, I guess, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's, it must be a lot on your shoulders all of a sudden, and you're like, where's this come from? Yeah, he, I mean, Matthew Smith himself, he got a lot of money very quickly, and then suddenly all his, a lot of people came out of the woodwork and started getting money and treating him really well, and suddenly he was the centre of attention, and then he was on TV, and... It was all fantastic, and then suddenly the pressure is there for the next game, and his way of dealing with the pressure, certainly for Jet Set Willy, mm. um, is ultimately what undid him. I mean, there was—I um, don't know if you if you know—but we actually did release the making of Jet Set Willy um, last year. Mm. We we showed it. We did a digital release of it to our um, backers. Um, they all saw it, um, and we we were sort of tentative about releasing that because Jet Set Willy's where it was the most painful memories for him. Mm-hmm. It was very, very difficult for him to uh, to talk about. There was a lot of pausing of the camera, if you know what I mean, and um, a lot of broke, broken sentences where we had to because that's where it really started to go wrong for him. So it was quite a hard part of the interview. So putting together, we were getting continually asked, oh, please, please send, release a Jet Set Willy making of because we've got, you just wouldn't believe the number of making ofs that we could put out. Um, they just take time to put together, you know. It's and um, that one in particular was very hard to put together. And, yeah, I, um, but it's good. It came out. Nick did a great job on it, actually. I remember meeting Matthew Smith um, when he'd first kind of come out of hiding and just started talking about Jet Set Willy, and it was very kind of a hard thing for him to do. You know? Yeah, it, it is. It's um, 
I have to say, though, it was one of the <coughs> best days we had because we spent the entire day with him, him and, uh, and Paul Drury. Yeah. And it was so nice and he's so lovely. I mean, it's obviously hard for him to talk about everything, but it was, a, I'd say, one of the best interviews because he hadn't really spoken about anything like that for, for years, had he? He turned down, um, I know for a fact that he turned, he turned down um, some major television programmes. What a Channel Four program in particular, he turned down and he accepted us, and it was really we got to, we owe that to Paul. Um, but it took a year to get the Matthew to do the Matthew Smith interview. We were we were on it from like January 2012 to December 2012. When we were talking with him prior to the interview, um, Paul wanted us to find somewhere that he'd feel relaxed. So I said, well, where's where's somewhere that he's got the happiest memories? And he said, oh, the arcade that he used to visit as a kid. And then when I checked, found it's still open. And uh, we basically, I called them up and said, look, we'd like, and stupidly, because you're in the middle of the film production, you sort of think that everybody's heard of everybody you're interviewing, you know, as if they're, they're, they're megastars. And I called him up and said, we, we want to bring uh, Matthew Smith down for an interview. And we wonder if it's possible we could just have a, an hour or two in the corner of the arcade. Anyway, the guy shuts the arcade for the day. Well, not for the day, for the, for half a day, wasn't it? Yeah. And he was like, whatever you need, no problem. You know, as long as you mention the, the name of the arcade in the film, can't wait to see it. Really looking forward to it. When we got there, he thought he was going to meet Doctor Who. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought you were going to say. Why did you think the Amiga needs its own movie then? When we were making From Bedrooms to Billions, when we were, we, we had a lot of set questions. <clears throat> and when we got to the 16-bit era, it was getting very, very hard to find a developer that didn't trash the ST. <laughs> and it was, and I had an ST and I loved it. Yeah. And I was genuinely trying to understand why it was derided so much because I thought it was, um, you know, I thought, oh, wasn't it popular? And it seemed to be, you know, developer after developer after developer was fe felt that what they really wanted to do was work with the Amiga and they were held back by the ST. I had an, I had an ST for years, loved it. Then I got an Amiga, loved it equally. And I loved them equally. I didn't actually... As a consumer, rather than a technical genius, I just assumed they were both on equal footing. And the arguments about which one was best was just the type of silly playground wars that you used to get with the Spectrum and the Commodore. And that they both had their merits and, and everything else. So we were genuinely getting surprised when we were finding out from you know lots of developers and artists and other things. There was the odd developer that would say, oh, the ST was all right, it wasn't too bad. So we started to ask more questions about, about the difference between the machines, then began to realise that we wouldn't be able to really do this justice. We felt that the Amiga seemed to have been the driving force for everything. So it seemed to be that the, um, uh, I can imagine a hell of a lot of ST fans pulling their hair out of this, but um, what it seemed to be was that even the development of the Amiga eventually saw the creation of the ST. Mm -hmm. it's, it's rather complex, but it, it, it felt like the, the, the Amiga itself with its multi, multimedia capabilities and its graphical abilities and all the other things was the actual injection um, into the, when I say computer industry, I, I mean it in relation to the games industry, what it did to the games industry um, as how it, suddenly the bar went right up uh, in games. And obviously the ST does play a part of that and the ST is not getting a trashing in the film because the ST also played a part in how the Amiga, for example, the A500, then, you know, there was there were things that Tramiel was extremely good at getting product out there. It didn't matter whether it was good or bad. 
and and generally it was good. But he was very, very good at selling and getting machines out there. And you sort of look at it and think, my God, if the, if Trammell had actually had the Amiga, you know, and there was no, you know, it was just the Amiga, then it would have just been, it would have dominated everything. Because mm-hmm. it, it should have effectively been um, a major force by the time we got to the, the real rise of the PC in the early 90s. We did start cutting together that, that section in the film and thinking that there's so much to tell. <laughs> That it just would have, we'd have had to have gone on for another two hours in that direction, um, and we just couldn't do it. And and it to have, you know, we couldn't have skirted around stuff too much. There is just a whole, so much information. You know, when we've done our interviews for the Amiga years, there's stuff that we've only just found out ourselves as well. And you think, oh my God, how? There's just a, a huge story there, and it just would not have been able to get it all in from bedrooms. So that's why we decided at that point, we thought, well, we can only really cover, I think it's about 20 minutes mm. in the film, something like that. Mm. We just couldn't go into detail on it. I will say one thing, as somebody who grew up with an Amiga, I mean, you know, you mentioned that you both had Amiga 500s as well. I don't know if you touch, <laughs> touch on this in the film at all, but piracy was a massive thing on the Amiga. Um, is that oh, anything yes, that you mentioned in the film? It's, it's um, well, the thing is, the... It's a really big one that you've got. You've got arguments that it was a good thing, arguments that it was a bad thing. But you know, if you're a developer and you receive a paltry royalty for a game that you've worked 18 months on, and you're relying on your mortgage being paid um, and and just living, and you can't make new games because you don't get any royalties in because millions of copies have been pirated, then it is it's not funny. You know, it's a serious, it's a serious business for you. You know, you want to make if you get good royalties in, um, fine. You might buy a Ferrari, but at the end of the day, you're going to make more games, and you're going to be happier as a as a creative developer and wanting to make more games. But on the flip side, you had the whole the whole demo scene, which was fueled by the copying, the copy parties, and and other things. Um, and the Amiga made that made that very very simple. X Copy was a system seller. Yes, we've yeah. actually interviewed Rich Aplin, who. Uh, as he said, he he who had played a part in that. Uh, he didn't he didn't de- solely develop X Copy, but he was involved in some of the work on it. And um, as he said, he provides copying assistance software. Um, so, <laughs> <Back> well, <up. laughs> at, the, at the current moment, a lot of the top cracking groups and hacking groups that release torrents often talk about Amiga, and a lot of them are actually groups from the Amiga. So it's still kind of got a Pirate Bay legacy. <laughs> I think it's quite funny that because when it's like when From Bedrooms to Billions came out, we released it to backers. Di- and by the way, I'm not saying this because we're annoyed, because if anything, we're flattered. Um, but uh, having said everything about Pirate, but literally, I checked the torrent sites within about three hours. Of, we released the film digitally to only to backers. It didn't come out um, for about another 48 hours. And it was on a torrent site within three hours. Oh, and wow. I thought a backer must have encoded that and stuck it up. And I thought, fair enough. Well, I expected that. I thought, well, and it was just, but then somebody told me it was, it had gone to number one in some, I can't, some popcorn thing or something it's called, a very, very popular torrent yep. chart. And it went to number one. It was like within a, within a couple of days. So we were sort of, oh, okay. We also found it on YouTube as well. Oh yeah, some yeah. idiot stuck it on YouTube within a few days. I was like, well, so we have to take that down, but. I have to be. It's funny, actually. We've had we've had not we've had not hate mail, but we've had some really weird emails from ST groups. It's a bit like I think it's a bit like um, the little brother syndrome, where the sort of um, you know the little brother that's has to shout slightly louder to be heard by the older brothers and sisters. I think 
the ST sort of users feel as if like we've sort of sold out or something going for the Amiga, but it's not. It's nothing like that. It's it we if we'd called it the ST the ST and the Amiga years, it just first of all it's not the it's not the greatest title though that yeah. was our working title for a little while. But we felt that the story of the Amiga is a really good one to tell. You know, there's an awful lot of great material to tell in, in telling the story. I mean, the whole and and the the lineage of the Amiga is totally Atari. Yeah. It should have been the next. You know, you know this obviously. Yeah, it, was, it should have been the next yeah. Atari machine. Mm-hmm. And also, as we were um, shooting all the interviews, we were learning that the effort that went into effectively create the chips. Because what you got to understand is that when when Jay Miner and Joe Decor worked at Atari in 1976, the the Stellar project, which became the VCS 2600, at the time, the the arcade machines uh, in the predominantly obviously in the US. Um, which were using discrete logic before before microprocessors um, were being used. They were you were talking about having 150, 200 chips uh, on machines like Super Breakout, which you you know, and that that's all they could play. That's all they could play, and were extremely expensive to manufacture. So of course the the Stellar team, the first task they had was trying to work out a way of shrinking 150 odd chips down to one so that it could be mass-produced and get into people's homes. So it was a way of trying to get complex games that people were enjoying in the arcades and bringing them home. Mm-hmm. And um, the and that became the first task. So you tend to find with, with engineers, is they it's all about solving problems. Uh, same with coding. You know, you have a you have a problem. I want to do. I want to do this, or I want to shrink this number of chips down into this. So then there's just logical problems. And what you know, what I've got here sitting on my desk is Joe and Jay's all their notes, all of them, the hand in handwritten notes, all wow. of the originals, um, where they're solving all their problems to get effectively to create the chips for the Stellar. Um, and then the same with the Atari 800. And then I've got their. Um, funny enough, I, I posted this on the Amiga Facebook page today because I promised I'd give them some stuff. But the 1979 design document on Atari-headed paper for the Amiga. No way. Was that posted today? Was it? Yeah, yeah, I saw it earlier. Yeah, on the fa- earlier. yeah. but effectively, the um, that would have been so. 1979, Joe and Joe, as far as I'm concerned, after successfully working on the VCS, come out, sold millions of units. Atari 800. It was a brilliant, brilliant machine, the 400 and 800. It didn't sell in the same sort of units as you would expect, like with the Apple II and certainly the Commodore 64 a couple of years later. Their next project, as far as they were concerned, was a 68,000 machine mm-hmm. um, that would be the next generation that might take a couple of years to develop. Um, and they were just stonewalled by Atari at that time, who were owned by Warner Communications. So that was why they were immediately, and that's why Jay ultimately left. Jay and Joe mm-hmm. ultimately left because as engineers you want to be working on the next groundbreaking project not working on sort of the silly little telephones and stuff that they were asked to start working on just one thing i'd like to ask you because i think you guys might know you know having spoken to so many people you might know better than anyone but why do you think people are so interested in retro gaming and computers i was, wa- I was watching a youtube, a youtube gamer the other day that's 28 years old mm-hmm. right and he was talking you know frankie on pc in 1080p he was talking about a retro game for him which was um, Tomb Raider 2. And to him, that's retro gaming. He was he was playing Tomb Raider 2 and uploading the video onto YouTube. Now, he plays sort of Daisy and all sorts of um, main PC games. But to him, as a 28-year-old, his retro gaming is the console that he had as a kid that he loved. It was his first console. And to him, it brought warm, lovely feeling back to him. Now, for, for me, when I play Bruce Lee, 
it reminds me of playing it in my bedroom as a 12 year old and enjoying, really enjoying playing through the game and being amazed by the graphics and all the other things that came from it. So I think that... It's that nostalgia, it's that feeling that it gives you of remembering what you were like when you were little. You know, I mean, when I sit there with my Spectrum, which doesn't work at the moment, but I sit there and I look at it and I think of my time in my mum and dad's front room, lying on the floor with my neck bent upwards, trying to type stuff in and uh, and spending the entire day doing a typing listing and then it never working. <laughs> it never did, did that. So there, there's things like that and I think that's what it is. It's just that nostalgia. And if it's a if it's a time when you're enjoying yourself, then it, it just brings it just reconnects those wires in your mind sometimes and brings back those floods of, of great memories. Whether it be ha I mean sometimes I you know, I've got a lot of my uh, old games on display now, so you know, I pull out the cassette and it's just like the idea of opening it, even the Mastertronic cassettes. I mean, it's just this for the feeling of opening it up and looking at and I might not have looked at that particular cassette, properly opened it up for twenty five years, thirty years. And the same is with the Amiga. Because I remember being of a you know older when I when I got the I got my A five hundred in ninety two it was relatively late for me um, but you know and same with the ST it, it just it, it's that it's that connection with the past and one of the things that we tried to do with from bedrooms to billions um, was that was was give, give a, the viewers a, a feeling of that nostalgia so that they weren't just looking at talking heads they were seeing things hearing things all the time. And one of the things that I'm really, I personally take a lot of pleasure from is when people write to us and say that they love watching it over and over. Which, and somebody actually posted once, I think about six months ago, they said it's a great film to have on with the sound low um, with your mates. As if it's, you know, like have a few friends around and put the film on. I'm not trying to sell it, it here. Just by get the, way. the atmosphere, you know. <laughs> and, and literally, it just comes to that thing where you see something on screen and then you have a conversation for 20 minutes because you saw a clip of a game that triggered and then you all have a chat about it. So I've noticed people have said it's a great social film where a few friends come around, you bung it on, uh, even bits of it or something. I mean, sometimes I, I actually fire it up on Netflix and watch. The, the Commodore 64 bit because I just I always put it sounds really big headed this but I just love listening to the Sid Chip sequence mm -hmm. in it um, yeah. I really I just enjoy that bit because I used to take a lot of pleasure from listening to to, um, to Robin and um, Martin Galway back in the back in the day so I just like that sequence personally and we make our friends watch it don't we <laughs> <laughs> come on watch my again film <laughs> well Stuart Connolly I collaborated with on a couple of tracks on the home sound, up uh, on the from bedrooms to billions soundtrack. We worked on home and a couple others. He he's working with Rob Hubbard and myself again, and um, he's got a little studio in his flat. And sometimes we I go over there or we go over there, and after after we've recorded or done something, we, it just it's gone on too many times. And Nicola actually sort of, I said you didn't put from bedrooms to billions on again. And I said well it was only to sort of show them how it was how that track was used in the film. And she's like, I don't want to know. It's embarrassing. The guy's going to disown you. He's not going to want to know. Well, there'll be obviously this new film that you can uh, we can all watch over and over again, no doubt. When can we expect the Amiga years then? Um, you know, it's also say at the moment. No, yeah. it's coming out on the 28th of April. Um, we've got some filming coming up in the next couple of weeks, um, but we've got a solid timeline together now, and we've got most of our archive together now. Yeah, um, just getting music clearances sorted out. Um, it's a bit more archive we're trying to source as well. So I must also yeah, say, I'm now. sorry to bring this up now, sort of, but we actually we were actually really upset 
yesterday because obviously Dave Needle passed away. Yeah, yeah, um, we mentioned that at the beginning of our show, um, and I guess you guys met him for interviews for the Amiga years. And I filmed him, and yeah, and exchanged many emails with him, and he was a really, really lovely guy. Mm. And uh, we were really upset on Sunday night to when we read it, uh, RJ, um, to let everybody know, and it was just we were just gutted basically. I don't think yeah, there's really much. Sad. Really much else we can really say about it. Just our thoughts go out to his family. I mean, he he never really was able to get over the death of his wife. He was so upset about his wife, and even when we were filming, he had to take moments because he's very emotional, a uh, very emotional guy, very lovely guy, um, but very emotional. And I think that's again, as I as I posted earlier today, we genuinely take a crumb of comfort in the idea that he might now be with her again. So yeah. it's um, yeah, it's a and that's that's just sort of. Moving slightly forward, the, the what will what hopefully will encapsulate when we're telling that part of the story is how the Amiga was built was a true team effort where you know people weren't being paid, and Dave was one of those where he worked for months and months with no money because his, he believed his in the project. Is um, brilliant, absolutely fantastic, and and actually we're actually working on a, a big section with him at the moment, so it'll be nice seeing that all in the film. Genius, but he told us so many great stories. Uh, one in particular, who gave us permission to reveal, which we can't reveal on here, but it will be in the mm -hmm. film. Yeah. It's quite a, what a it's quite a big one. <laughs> so it's the first time it's ever been ever been revealed. So uh, he said he, well, he assures us. Well, in fact, he, he, uh, we asked, told RJ, didn't we? And RJ said he knew it, but he was like, I can't believe Dave's gone and said that. It's, there's a lot of stuff like that. And Bob Periso is a real um, a sort of unheard of hero. Really, we tried to get Bob in the film, but um, we couldn't. We found him, but we couldn't get a reply from him. Which, you know, you get when you're dealing with people's pasts. Um, you know, Bob got fired, not by Jay or any of the direct Amiga team. It was Commodore management when they cleared house, uh, mainly due to cash flow problems in the um, uh, in sort of 87, 86, 87. Because like they didn't even go to CES in January '86. You think they've got this amazing new computer that could change the world? And they haven't released it properly yet. It's it's been announced. It's come out. They're barely they can barely afford to produce many units, and they can't even afford to go to the January CES show in uh, in Vegas. In it's Commodore all over that though, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's, it's they they all talk about Bob Perisso though. He was such so good at selling. Yeah. And any kind of anything that presented itself, any hitches or anything, he was so good at adapting to them situations and kind of continuing to sell. No matter what was happening, he would continue to sell and show how good the computer was. So, uh, yeah, there's a nice little section on, on Bob within the film as well. Bob Perisso is the guy with the ponytail and the tuxedo that comes out and says, you know... Um, the launch of the Amiga, yeah. The Amiga, yeah. yeah. What, can the Amiga, what can you do with the Amiga? And, and everything. So yeah, we were hoping to get him in the film, but we've not done bad. We've got most of the original engineering team in the film, um, plus a few surprises. We always we never like to reveal um, everybody. We like you know <laughs> we are trying to entertain, so we want it to be a, a few moments. Oh oh, I didn't think you get him. Oh, they managed to get him. So there's a uh, hopefully a few moments like that. 
Well, I've, I've got to say, you know, Ravi and I are both massive Amiga fans, and you know, I love the original Bedrooms to Billions, and I know Ravi did too. You know, when I heard there's going to be a dedicated movie, I was yeah. I've got my Blu-ray ordered. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot wait. Thank to you see very it. much. For that. Well, listen, guys, well, we, we we could talk all night, honestly, but I know you've got little ones, and uh, our show's only an hour long. But it's been <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you so much for coming on. Excellent. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. When's the film out again? Twenty eighth of April, and you can pre-order it now if you want the Oliver Frey cover. You have to pre-order it now from W www.frombedroomstobillions.com um, otherwise after the 28th of April it'll be another cover oh you need a limited edition yeah we yeah. did it with From Bedrooms to Billions if you remember there's the yeah. uh, the Oliver Frey cover which only backers have I think and I went for limited the, yeah yeah and you've got the uh, the Paul Carr one which is the you know Tarantino's artist um, who did our um, the black one with the um, uh, with the which is actually our son Thomas oh is it uh, with Matthew Smith's ZX Spectrum Oh, nice. Oh, nice. Yeah, we've never yeah. revealed that before, have we? Exclusive. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Take that care. Yeah. Thank you very much. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 